Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Hi, I'm Anne, and with Bill, I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we discuss the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Today, our two guests are professionals from the Melbourne Clinic who help people recover from addiction and substance abuse. Hi, uh, I'm Bill. Uh, I'd like to welcome Dr Michael Maloney and Effie Moriartis, uh, both from the Melbourne Clinic to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi, thank you for inviting us, Uh, Dr Maloney is a psychiatrist and the Program Director of the Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Unit and together with Effie, um, who is the Addictive Behaviours Therapy Manager, they provide high quality professional care to help people who are experiencing dependence on addiction concerns in their lives. Uh, We're going to talk about the role of the Melbourne Clinic in rehab today and discuss some of the support programs that they provide. So first of all, welcome to you both and thank you for joining us. Um, we thought to start with, we'd talk a little bit about yourselves and, and the sort of work you do, and we'll start with you, if you like, Michael, um, about, uh, I guess, your, your history in drug and alcohol rehab and you know what you'd like to say about the program you run. Well, basically, I mean, I've been working in the area for more than 20 years. I was director of a program at the Pine Lodge Clinic in Dandenong for several years, and then moved across to the Melbourne Clinic. Um, and as you say, my role is director of the rehabilitation unit. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that there's a role for adults for the uh, um, addiction psychiatry, but also a very clear role for addiction medicine. And so our detox program has until recently been run primarily by addiction medicine specialists. I think there are some things about our program that are rather different, and I think um, the biggest of those is that we understand substance use not as the problem, but as the person's solution to problems, and therefore we're really spending most of our time trying to understand what are the triggers, what are the drivers uh, to that particular substance use disorder. Um, And in a psychiatric clinic, we're acutely aware that by the time you get to an inpatient population, about 70% of them are going to have a comorbid psychiatric diagnosis. And therefore, it's important that we pick up both arms of their presentation. Uh, And beyond that, given their long history, they're also going to have significant physical health problems. So we're also aware of the need to look into their physical health as well as their substance use and mental health. Mm, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think I agree. My, my dad's an alcoholic and, and clearly he used alcohol to solve his problems, but it wasn't a very good solution. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but often what they're trying to solve is not unreasonable, a bit happier, a bit calmer, um, less traumatised. And so really we're very much focusing on finding healthier strategies once they understand the, the problem. Yes. Yep. Um, Effie, would you like to just give us a brief overview of the sort of services uh, you provide? 
Yeah, so I've been I've been at the Melbourne Clinic here for 11 years and I was a senior clinician at Turning Point before that for 12. So I've been in addiction, a bit like Mike actually, for over 20 years. And the services, so I lead a kind of a multidisciplinary team here made up of psychologists, social workers, occupational therapists, exercise physiology, art therapy, music therapy, pastoral care, so dietetics as well. So it's quite a very holistic program and when we work... Um, very cohesively with uh, psychiatrists, addiction medicine specialists, and the nursing team. It's incredible. Um, so within those, within the programs that we have, a, a seven to ten day detox or substance withdrawal program, in which people can either stop there and transition back into their lives, or they can go uh, ongoing and do a twenty eight day rehabilitation program, which consists of four themed weeks. Um, which we can talk a little bit about further. Um, and then there's an option of what we call the dual diagnosis program. And like Mike was saying, mental health, mental health, um, comorbidity, addiction, all very intricately linked. And that's a 20, that's a four week program. And of course, then we have an outpatient day program that's an ongoing program as well as outreach. So it's a very cohesive um, and all clinicians, all of the addictive behavior clinicians work across all of those programs. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah. Can I can I just can I just add to that? that, sure. that I, the evidence now, looking at brain's plasticity, is that if you've had a significant substance use disorder, you will have done some damage to your brain, and if you can give yourself a two-year period of sobriety, then most of that damage will be repaired. So we see our drug and alcohol programs as the start of the process and not the completion of the process. So at the end of 28 days of rehab, we're hoping to have been able to flag things that can then be followed up with psychiatry day programs, general practitioners, psychologists. But it's a two-year process of recovery. And using a whole variety of different um, therapies that we offer. And depending on what we flag, yes. Yeah, depending on what we have, depending on what the person needs. Yeah. Um, Michael, you, you mentioned that the the drug is usually the solution. Um, so, do you want to talk about the, um, I guess the the mental, uh, I guess a model of addiction? Uh, do you want to sort of explain what the current thinking is on the model of addiction? Well, as I said, if you if you approach it as the solution rather than the problem, then what you're looking at are what are the issues that they're trying to solve. In terms of the comorbid psychiatric conditions, as I've said, up to 70% of them are actually self-medicating, often an undiagnosed psychiatric condition. Um, certainly anxiety is one of the things that we pick up. Um, mm -hmm. So people who tell us they drink because it makes it easier to mix have probably got a degree of social anxiety. People who find that the substance helps them relax have probably got um, a generalized anxiety disorder. I think one of the words that is often overused is depression. Uh, the majority of our patients are unhappy. And when you look at their lives, it, it, their feelings are understandable. This is not a major depressive disorder. So most of them have taken all the antidepressants and will tell me that they've been a waste of time because antidepressants are not anti-unhappiness pills. <laughs> And I think part of our process is very much about empowering people to understand how much of the change that can be brought about will be by them and not someone like me finding the right cocktail of medications. 
in terms of other diagnoses from our own internal and from national research. At any one time, about 50% of our patients in the rehab program will have borderline personality disorder, a lifelong condition. Some people call it complex PTSD. It's arose by any other name. But a lot of our patients' problems start very early in childhood with mm -hmm. early adverse childhood events and for them to understand the narrative of their whole life, not just the last six, 12, 24 months. Mm. Um, so they begin to understand the, the journey that has led them to their current admission. So in a way, I'm taking them up in a bit of a balloon and letting them look down at the various roads that have led to their mm. hospitalization. Mm. And often, if I can add to that, often, so from the minute people come into detox, we really do encourage the people to look at why do I do this? Why, why, one of the reasons, like, like Mike saying from, from looking down, one of the reasons historically that I have ended up, I mean, I don't think, I think it's fair to say that nobody at the age of 10 decides that they want to do rehab as an adult. It happens very slowly, it happens over a period of time for many different reasons. And you know, we see people as people. Um, we encourage people to look at why, um, and and also to see that this is a behaviour. It's not who they are as a person, because often people link addiction with identity. This must be who I am. So it, it's really we really try and help them understand who they are, because often they've lost that identity over time. So it, it is important to reconnect back with values, connect with other people. So that that's part of the journey, and we and we. The, the biological, psychological, and social models. So from their medical, we look at people from a medical, biological perspective, the psychological of their traumas, and socially, how they interact, how do they connect with others, and how can the program help using various skills and techniques and each other, obviously, as peer groups, because that's really powerful to help them on that journey. Mm. Often people who come onto our show and talk about recovery um, actually mention turning to drugs or alcohol in their teens as they're going through puberty and, and finding it hard to fit in. So is, is that your experience that people generally start early? I, I think actually uh, when you step back and look at the whole story, more often than not, they've engaged throughout their life in a whole range of different quick fixes to feel better for a moment, usually high price attached. And it's one of the things we have to watch when they come into hospital. One of the easiest things to do in hospital is stop using alcohol, stop using your drugs. But if you understand that that's been a coping mechanism, and we haven't yet had a chance to introduce them to new coping mechanisms, since some of them are smoking more, some of them are eating more, we have very strict rules around sexual behavior, accessing pornography, gambling online, when the shops were open, shooting into Richmond and spending more money. So you really find that there's quite a range mm. of, of quick fix behaviours um, that they've engaged in through their life. So it doesn't always start as um, alcohol. Quite a large number of patients we see have started with an eating disorder. Mm. And having stopped the eating behavior, if you haven't understood that it was a coping mechanism, you then switch. So a year or two later, we're seeing them in the drug and alcohol program. Mm. So I think it's understanding, you know, that a whole range of behaviors have been inappropriate strategies to cope with perfectly reasonable goals. Mm. Mm. So the, the next thing I'd like to talk about is um, how people approach uh, clinics like the Melbourne Clinic. 
the, I guess, the process they need to go through to come to the Melbourne Clinic. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, uh, about, uh, and also about how families and friends can help them through that process of making that initial connection? Well, the majority of our patients come in, have private health insurance. And to access our services, usually you need a referral from a general practitioner. It is possible to self-fund, it's expensive. Um, and the good thing about private health insurance is you only have to be in for two months for any sort of psychiatric problem before you qualify. So rather than building up a huge debt of several thousand dollars, it's probably worth um, waiting and getting private health insurance. Um, in terms of how families and can help, ultimately, the distance between feeling you should do something and doing it is much bigger than the distance between wanting to do something and, mm -hmm. and actually doing it. Uh, and so if you're really, we, we try not to uh, let them approach it on the basis that I'm doing it for my wife or I'm doing it for my kids or ultimately it's what's in it for them. It has to be driven by their own mm -hmm. particular motivation. And I will, what I will say about that as well is that we, you know, we are a voluntary service and but, you know, you do get people in a, in a what, you know, what we call a pre-contemplative state and, and they don't necessarily believe they have a problem, but their families perceive them to have a problem and they see behaviours and they're, they're, observing, they're observing various kind of life routines that, that they, are, they become concerned about. And, of course, we do get family members who do contact us, say, what does your service involve? We have conversations about that, but ultimately the person needs to contact themselves so we know that there's some level of motivation. However, what I will say is that what, what absolutely true what Mike is saying around it has to be an intrinsic um, motivation, but the person who comes in because they've had an ultimatum from their partner or their parents have said, sorry, you can't live at home anymore because, you know, you have to get, you have to get over this addiction. All of, those, all of those people that are coming like that will always learn something. Mm. And I think that's really important not to block that because... Once the, people are often scared about coming into inpatient services as well. We see that time and time again. Somebody comes in for the first time in the first week, they're really unsure about what's happening, who's here, you know, what the service is about. And then once they start to kind of become a little bit more, more comfortable, they start to feel better physically. They start to have clerically, psychologically, their cognitive flexibility changes. And they begin to then maybe question, do, I might want to do something about this really. And they become much more motivated they have physical therapy they have all sorts of types of therapies that help that process moving forward so we definitely have family members we do family work in our programs as well in all of the programs um, that's a very very important part families need to feel like they can access um, and 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 have knowledge of what the programs are about to help if nothing more to help the communication process um, and and have gain a better understanding i mean often families um, we find, you know, the education of fam educating families is highly critical. Mm. But also being realistic about uh, their expectations and ours and understanding that these yeah. are relapsing conditions mm -hmm. and that it's not a one admission solving everything. And when patients do relapse, helping them understand that each time they relapse, there's a lesson in there. Why? Why on Tuesday at 2 o'clock did I decide to pick up again? What was actually mm. happening at that moment? 
Um, but the problem with doing it for families is the moment those people upset you, you've got the perfect weapon to punish them. Yeah. <laughs> so well, often, it's true. Yeah. 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 Typical addict behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so they're punishing themselves as well. I mean, oh, they're punishing uh, themselves as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it's hard to watch people, you know, it, it's hard to watch an alcoholic kill themselves with alcohol uh, if you're a family mm -hmm. member, yeah. Uh, so that's next I'd like to discuss um, your substance withdrawal program. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about, I guess, the nature of substance dependence um, and addiction and what the substance withdrawal program aims to do and talk a bit about how long it takes and things like that? Well, I mean, yep. it depends on the substance, obviously. Primarily, it's a medical program to allow people to safely withdraw from their medications, usually supplemented with other medications. So, for example, uh, with alcohol, we'll use the benzodiazepine short term so that they have a safe withdrawal. They're not having fits. They're not having heart attacks. With something like marijuana, which comes out of your system very slowly, there really isn't a medical substitute for that. But you are at least giving them what one of my colleagues would call an environmentectomy. You're taking them out of the environment in which there is a lot of temptation to continue using. And by bringing them into a more closed environment, you're giving them a chance um, to begin to practice abstinence. Um, but at the same time, we're starting to introduce the ideas about why people use. We're also looking at relapse prevention. So what are the immediate triggers? Uh, until recently, one of the triggers was the drug dealer who lived on the corner and we have the pub over the road. And so um, in that first seven to 10 days, what are going to be the temptations when you leave the clinic? Um, so that's really the first seven to 10 days with something like methamphetamine because methamphetamine if it's used regularly produces an adhd we there have a 28-day abstinence period before we will introduce them into the rehabilitation program so they're the best possible place to, to get to maximize the learnings from our program mm -hmm. and now we've got the dual diagnosis program it is possible for them to have a longer period of abstinence within not our formal detox program, but in our dual diagnosis program, and then to transfer back into the rehabilitation program once they've withdrawn. So, 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 sorry. And there, the, until recently, we were the only private hospital that actually had opiate substitution therapy, mm -hmm. and we brought patients in more hospitals are now doing it and i've never understood why not because it's really about helping people behave in an optimal way in a safe way um, so for some of our patients who are using opiates either because of opiate use disorder um, or because of inappropriate pain management we will introduce them to opiate substitution and manage that before then moving on to rehabilitation okay and the emotional and psychological side of that is that um the seven to 10 day detox gives people an understanding of the difference in them between using and not using for 10 days. So they begin to actually then understand, wow, I feel, I feel um, clear. I'm having conversations with people I don't normally have. I'm connecting with other people. They might be sitting there withdrawing. Somebody will walk past, how are you? Non-judgmental environment. 
So, and often people can, with, you know, probably correct me if I'm wrong, but they'll withdraw, you know, for three to four or five days before they start to feel a lot better to be able to actually join the groups. And our groups are mandatory. Um, for detox, obviously, it's on merit and how people are feeling and, and, and obviously people are well, they don't go to group. But yeah. it's, a, it's a fantastic, it's a, it's a great length of time for people to um, see themselves slightly in a different light and understand actually perhaps perhaps there is something to the recovery, to, to me recovering yeah. and employing kind of relapse strategies because I feel better now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, one Not of our, to have a hangover. Yeah. 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 <laughs> one of our recent guests uh, was sharing that um, after he came off uh, drugs that he was in a room full of uh, drug addicts who had done a similar thing and he it was the first time he'd ever felt comfortable uh, mm. because they weren't asking him for drugs or trying to <laughs> trying to take him down. Um, so, yeah, it was a a re-experiencing the people around him yeah. that he just hadn't been able to do for years and years, yeah. And the sense of belonging too, Bill, the sense of belonging people yeah. have. Other mm. people have got the same issues as me. Yeah. Wow, yeah. I'm suddenly connecting, yeah. yeah. Also, sometimes just feeling less of a freak and looking mm. around the room and seeing at some of the other people in the room. There are doctors and accountants and mm. nurses and a whole range of people. And quite often when you've had a prolonged period of drug abuse, you feel that there's something bizarre, strange about you. So it, you can get a sense of being more normal. Yeah. Mm. And what about polyaddiction? Um, do you have that situation where people need to come off more than one drug at once? Yeah, and, yeah. and we manage yeah. that. Um, yeah. And we're interested in what they like about each of the drugs, mm. um, because that's a clue as to why they're using. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm always surprised how much um, drug addicts know about drugs and the and the range of drugs they've taken in their uh, using life, and they're very specific about what they take when, I, in a needs basis, and they're also very specific that they'll take anything they can get their hands on, when it comes to a pinch. So, so how do you don't take anything they can get their hands on except something on a prescription, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even something on the prescription, because we do have that as well. We have people who abuse their prescriptions. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's definitely, you know, that's definitely something we see. Yeah. Um, so things like endone and yeah. Yeah. So do you have people that you find it difficult to determine what to bring them off? You know, do you uh, determining which what what is the the the, the problem, if you like? Well, I think when you're bringing somebody into hospital, it's a risk management thing. So if you're going to stop things like alcohol and benzodiazepines, then you do it in a controlled and a slow way. Um, and with some people who've been taking very large doses of things like benzos, for example, then you may, you may spend a period in the hospital and then have a prolonged outpatient period with a home detox process going on for several weeks, not necessarily doing it all in seven to ten days. Sorry, sorry, Mike. Uh, usually, people also identify what they want to what they want to come off. Mm. So, you know, we'll have people who, for mm. example, might say, "Look, I, I I definitely have methamphetamine and an alcohol addiction, but right now, I just really want to look at my meth addiction. Alcohol is something I might do outside of here again." But I really, really want to look at my the meth addiction for now. Yep. Um, 
And certainly yeah. nicotine isn't a priority for us, so they do have no. leave to go smoking and yeah. and something yeah. that they can consider later. Yeah. yeah. Because not everybody's not everybody's going to come into a detox or a rehab completely wanting abstinence from everything. Mm. Yep. So that's really that that's that's really their choice and they're empowered to do what they they feel that they need at every given moment. Yeah. And, and, and even if they use even if they're using to understand why they're using, mm. what, what mm. benefit they're obtaining from the drugs they wish to continue. Yeah. Mm. So do you talk talk about addiction at that point um, and about the, the reason for the addiction or do you leave that for the recovery phase? From the beginning. Yeah. We start those conversations from the very beginning in detox because if people are just going to do a seven to 10 day program highlighting maybe there's something behind your history that might correlate, you know, that you haven't just arrived here. There's, there's a sequence of events. And, you know, what, I guess what we do know about trauma is it changes our self-concept and it changes our story and it changes our self-esteem and our confidence, which then ultimately changes our, the decisions we make going forward. Mm. So we do try and introduce that concept and help people you know, we're, all, we're available, we're all available on the ward. So if people ever want to have a conversation outside of the group, that's always available to them between nursing staff, allied health as well, and their doctors come in very regularly. So that's that definitely is introduced early on. Okay. And, and it, you know, the idea is that addicts are not stupid. Mm. What they're doing is purposeful. Mm. And it's for them to understand the purpose, what it is they're trying to achieve. Yeah. So I said an early question is, what do you like about alcohol? And mm. initially they'll say, oh, God, no, I hate it, I hate it. But you have mm. to keep pushing. You know, There was some benefit, it was short term, and you yeah. paid a high price for it. Mm. But that's the way into them yeah. understanding the behaviour. Yeah, and then what are the consequences that you don't like from this? Because they're often, you know, the use is immediate, immediate emotional leads to longer term consequences, which involve a whole range of things, family, health, daily living, legal matters, tolerance, you know, there's all sorts of um, consequential factors. Yeah. I think you have to be careful that fear is, is not a good reason because mm. people after about a year lose that fear and they relapse. So. Mm. One, one last question then. Um, alcohol and drugs often have a violent component. So do you have to deal with any adverse reactions from patients? Yes, we have very strict rules around inappropriate behaviour. Um, depending the level of inappropriateness, we have a warning system, verbal, written, and then discharge. Um, and sometimes if it's really significant uh, violence, then um, they will be discharged. But we also have a policy of readmitting. So that if you are discharged from the detox program for inappropriate behaviour of any sort, violent, sexual, drug use, alcohol use, you can, after a period of seven to 10 days, be readmitted to the program. And, and if you offend within the rehab program, we just wait 28 days so that all the people that knew about you and your previous problem have moved on and you're now getting a chance to start with a new group. We have very strict, we have written contracts about appropriate and inappropriate behavior um, that they sign on to at the beginning of the programs. And also, I mean, it, it's not common for us to have a lot of aggression. Uh, we, it can happen, but it's not common for us to... One of the reasons I think it's not common is because uh, clearly over time when people are staying in their inpatients, you can see aggression, you can see anger brewing. 
So we do sit with people, we talk to people, what's happening, what's going on, what do you need, what, what's the anger about, what's coming up for you. So we, we try and prevent those to help them understand what's going on for them. But also and to have conversations. Effie and, and the nursing staff and her staff are very consistent in the way they apply the rules. So you actually then create a culture around the ward where the patients are warning each other, don't do that because. And so they introduce levels of control within the patient group. It's not always done just by staff. Okay. I think it's really that the environment is, you know, people are living here, but they're also living with us on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's very, it, where there's a lot of accessibility to have lots of different conversations. So hopefully, I would like to think that we pick things up um, across the board from all, all staff yep. before it gets to a point where it becomes unmanageable. Mm. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, listen, I think we'll take a quick break. Um, Anne's got a song queued up, and it's called Love Serenade uh, by The Wakes. <laughs> time comes You can hear my heart calling I'm calling to you my one true love Well I'm thinking about you all of the while Thinking about you making me smile Honey I'm sitting on top of the world Just thinking about you Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack, 
and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Welcome back to The Living Free Show on 3CR. 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today we're talking to Dr. Michael Maloney and Effie Moratis from the Melbourne Clinic about rehabilitation. Um, so... I guess the next thing we like to talk about is the, um, I think it's a 28-day rehab program that you run, and yeah. to look at, I guess, um, the aims of that program, what what you expect people to get out of it by the time they leave. Uh, Michael? Well, I guess basically the aims are to help them understand how they've ended up um, in a place like ours, um, to introduce them to some healthier strategies, and as I've said, ultimately to empower them to understand that changes that are to be made are going to be made by them, by them learning to do things differently and not waiting for another quick fix, um, like anti-craving pills, which really are, again, overrated. And I think cravings is something at some point, if you want to discuss it, that is misunderstood. It's... Um... It's optimizing optimizing people feeling functional through a variety of, of different skills that they can learn and 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 gaining gaining management skills for their life because you know for us recovery is for people to develop a life that they feel comfortable and safe within and, and have a purpose. So we do discuss a whole range of, of, of skills and theories that we that we help people to try and ultimately try to connect with themselves physically, psychologically, emotionally, socially, to connect with other people, whether they're work, family, friends, um, and, and definitely to understand themselves better. And not, not um, you know, the guilt and shame and the sense of failure is so profound to try not to sit with that ongoing and to have a, a sense of, I can, I can do this. I can gain confidence. Um, and I'm resilient and I can work through things that actually come up, any crisis in my life, any triggers, I am capable of working through. 
this for my life and, and allowing others to help me. Because I guess what we do know is it's very hard to do this on your own. Hence why these services exist and outpatient programs exist because, and like Mike was saying before, a two-year process, because it's very, very important. You know, where the the staff are one part of the story, but actually their peers that they're connecting with every day and outside of here are really crucial to their development and their skill building of life. And often that transition is very difficult. Yeah? The transition from an inpatient to an outpatient and suddenly all their triggers are in front of them again. Hopefully by that stage, they've learned skills to manage those. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess one of the questions is um, you introduce them to groups that help them uh, I guess peer peer based groups that help them to understand that they're they're not terminally unique and that they're just like a whole lot of other people, but they have a common problem. So um, I guess is but it's introducing them to new strategies, strategies yeah. to manage anxiety, strategies to manage uh, emotions. Um, I, I, as I said, it's a twenty eight day where we're starting to flag things that may well need much longer interventions uh, beyond the 28-day program uh, but they're beginning to see the relevance of those issues uh, in terms of their own recovery yeah and we break that program into four weeks so emotional emotional regulation interpersonal relationships relapse prevention and and mental health and well-being so it's um and, and health and well-being so within those four weeks we provide a whole variety of not only psychoeducational topics we have um, introduction to AA in those four weeks. We have, you know, Mike does once a month a model of recovery presents. We have a psychiatric registrar who presents every week. And all of the clinicians, we do individual therapy, family sessions, motivational interviewing, help them to try and know what they need and, 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 and ask for support and, and through each other, help them to understand, learn, learn about themselves through the eyes of other people and interpersonal therapy. Using, using therapies like cognitive behavioural therapy, dialectical, acceptance and commitment therapy. There's a whole variety of things. Exercise is crucial. And there's lots of, there's, there's people who also, language is not something that they're used to using to express themselves. So it might be music, it might be art therapy, understanding grief and loss. They, when the substance, when they lose a substance or when they decide that the substance is no longer going to be present in their lives, there's a lot of grief and loss in that. Mm. So, yeah, helping them connect with that and what that means for them. Yeah. I... One of the emotions that is underestimated is boredom. And so yeah. one of the things we try and help them manage is boredom. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually have every hour of the day structured. Um, but encouraging them, uh, recreation, fun, doing things just for themselves, yeah. not just focusing on the needs of other people. And mindfulness is crucial as well because allowing... We do, we have mindfulness throughout all the programs and that's really important to help people be able just to sit with a difficult emotion, which, uh, you know, I don't know any person that loves to sit with a difficult emotion. So it is important to, to know that you can sit with something difficult, you can talk to other people about it and ultimately that may pass. And what you learn is that, you know what, I felt really sad, I felt betrayed, I felt angry, but actually I moved through it and that builds confidence and self-esteem and, and the ability to cope with life. Mm. Often um, people who come on our show talk about isolating, you know, that the, the last um, stages of their pre-recovery 
is pretty isolated, drinking alone, using alone. Um, so do people find it difficult to reconnect with others? No, I would say people are, because of the, because of the environment here, people are always passing each other in the hall. There's a, there's a lounge room, there's a kitchen. Often people are eating together, watching a movie, playing a game. And there's always people that will invite people in. Um, so often people say to us, I didn't realise that I could be this social again. Um, Without there drugs. Are obviously, there are also people, though, who might stay in their rooms. And if they do that, that's also a conversation to have what's happening for you, why you, why you, you, it feels like you're isolating in this environment. This is what you did out there. What's the choice? We're not going to make you do anything different. Obviously, this is your choice. But mm. And because they do groups together and the groups are mandatory, they do have a sense of others around them. So it's very hard not to connect in some way. Mm. Yeah, but it's ultimately up to them how much they do that. Mm. But they encourage each other yep. on the wall. Yeah. So, so what about pushback with people who don't, who sort of don't want to do it? So is I imagine that a lot of people are enthusiastic about detoxing, are enthusiastic about starting, and then go, well, actually, I don't want to stop. So do you, what, what's the attrition rate? We, we don't actually preach abstinence. I think that's the important thing. We're leaving them to make the choice as to how they want to go on behaving. Um, and a, a lot of them, having experienced sobriety, are convinced that they can do it on their own and they'll go home after seven to ten days and we will provide a discharge plan with somebody monitoring how they're doing. Um, and it's often after a couple of failures of that that they begin to realise perhaps they need a bit more help than just... Um, a short period of, of abstinence. So um, it's about tracking people. You walk alongside people until they're ready to, to move. I think that's the important thing. And not being judgmental, uh, making it very clear. That it's their choices. My job as a psychiatrist is to hopefully give people more choices, but to keep reminding myself and them that I'll never know what are the best choices for them. Um, but my job is to walk alongside them while they're reviewing their choices. And I think you're right. I think they're an expert on themselves at the end of the day. And, and we welcome those those really honest discussions about, I don't, I don't think I'm ready for this. I don't think I'm going to go out. I'm going to go use. Because what that does for, from our point of view is able to have conversations about, okay, if you're going to go and do this, how can you reduce the harms? You've had some really unhealthy, risky behaviours can we have a conversation that if you are going to go out and use, how, how, what do you need to do to maybe lessen a little bit or reduce the harms that have been associated in your life so far? Mm. That's a really important conversation to have with people, mm. especially after they've done you know, six weeks of an inpatient program, because if they start to use after that and their body's pretty green into, into their use, they, the overdose rate can be pretty high. So it's really important to have those conversations with people. But how do you step? How do you have a step approach to your use? Who do you need in your corner? Who's going to support you? Who's, who's your treatment team? If you do, you know, everybody needs a team that they can fall back on. You know, when, where, where do you think you're going to go for treatment? It is important to stay in treatment. We can still support you. We can still support you through that journey in an outpatient program. So we try and stay as involved as possible throughout every aspect, even if they want to go off and use after that. Because, like, like I said before, it's, this is a very 
it's a coping strategy and, and if you've been doing something for a long time it's very hard just to stop that yeah uh michael you mentioned craving before and uh suggested we might like to talk about it a bit more so would you like to just um fill us in sorry i missed that talk about uh craving oh cravings yeah i mean i think if you look at the alcoholism <clears throat> cravings is really quite a late symptom um in in terms of alcohol use where the body really actually needs alcohol to continue um, and when you look at the medications that are designed for that particular form of physical craving, generally after about a year, people probably are drinking less, but it doesn't actually stop you. What I try and help people understand is look at the reason you're using your substance, okay? And when they're talking about cravings, it's usually the re-emergence of their underlying anxiety, their underlying unhappiness, uh, their boredom, their fear. Their anger, for example, um, and you can then redirect them to find strategies to manage those re-emerging issues, rather than taking another pill, hoping that somehow it's going to make a difference uh, in the outcome. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a difference. Sorry, can I say there's also yeah. the the craving, which is I really want to use this, and the urge if I want to do it right now. There is a gap in that that people can use skills that we try and, and develop those skills. What's the you know I, I, I'm I've had this trigger I, I want to use. How can you make even if that decision is I'm going to delay that use by half an hour. It doesn't matter what it is, but they, as long as they can develop some other little bit of process that they can become more confident in over time. Yeah. And I think in that moment where they're wanting to use the word that I find most useful is because. Not why. Why is a bit sort of theoretical, but because takes them to very practical answers to, I want to use now because, um, but again, understanding that it's not, that there is some biological process going on in their brain requiring their methamphetamine or their marijuana, but there's underlying emotional drivers that they're trying to self-medicate. Mm. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, so... Once people have gone through uh, the 28 days, is there a, an automatic you have to leave or can people continue on for a little while? No, the contract with the health fund is that it's a 28-day admission. If during the 28 days other more significant psychiatric issues emerge, then obviously we will continue to use those. But um, I think that you have to be very careful to avoid prolonged hospitalizations that ultimately can be quite disempowering and make the transition back into their normal lives even more difficult. I know I know when we were when I was looking after children in, in with psychiatric problems, you couldn't leave them in hospital for more than six weeks because the whole family had reorganized without them um, and had given up the strategies um, that had helped them cope originally. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Generally, no, at the end of 28 days, we want you to go home um, and then follow up with the day program and, and psychiatrist or psych and or psychologist. Well, I, think, I think the anxieties are the anxieties about, you know, people when, when people leave. There's a normality to that. It's like studying for an exam and then life is your exam after rehab. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you have to then go and live your life and, and develop a life you want it, that you're really more comfortable in being in and safer in being in. So, and that's hard. I think that transition is really hard. But I think Mike's right. We, 
trying to develop the self-confidence enough and not and they they know that if they join the day program the outpatient programs that there will be a continuity of their care and somebody does know their story already and they don't have to retell their story that's important. It's yeah. Really important. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good segue, I guess, into the day programs and outreach. So, do you want to quickly just outline the the day programs and how they work? Yeah, so the day program, there's a whole variety of uh, different types of day programs and different types of therapies. The Addictive Behaviour Day program is um, over three. It, it runs three days: Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it runs from nine twenty in the morning till three in the afternoon. And we have an evening group on a Tuesday night that runs from 5.30 to quarter to nine. All of those groups have um, similar components. So we have mindfulness that we do in all of those groups. We have a check-in group, where are you at? Where are you at with your addiction? What skills have you used this week? Um, so people, we get a sense of, of, and everyone else gets a sense, the whole group gets a sense of how to help each other in that day. And then we have interpersonal therapy, which we really focus on emotional regulation and um, helping them understand there are similarities and differences in in um, in the way they cope with life. And you know, for example, we talk about you know, am I do I become defensive when somebody gives me you know what I perceive criticism? Am I am I not great with my boundaries? Um, what role do I play? Am I always a mediator? Am I... So we talk about the roles people play and whether they want to continue to play those and they get feedback within the group. Sometimes groups do a fat, what, what we kind of call a family reenactment. Somebody in the group might remind me of my, my sister or my brother or my, or my dad or my mum and that's, really, that, that's a really great resource to help people move through some of the issues. And in the afternoon we have a... a various different types of psychoeducational topics for relapse prevention and introducing even more skills as we go along. And those programs are ongoing. There's no start and stop. So if you want to start off doing three months and, but you want to do a year and you want to do two, you can continue to do them. It's the same staff, inpatient and outpatient. Um, And then there's there's an outreach program where there's, there's clinicians who go out to a person's home, so that's another service that's offered by the Melbourne Clinic. That's an amazing service. So, you know, if people want to, if people don't go on and don't can't go out and see someone, a psychologist, a social worker, counsellor, one on one weekly, that our outreach program will go to their home. They might go inside the house, or they might be go to a cafe and, and meet there, wherever the person feels most comfortable and safe is where the clinician, sometimes it's, it might be through work time or lunch time. It's, re, it's really determined by, by the, the person needing the treatment. Mm. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Effie, you also mentioned earlier about family and friends. So what sort of support do you offer family and friends of people who are in your clinic? So when people go through the 28-day rehab process and then come to our patient, what we offer is two things. We offer a monthly... We invite everybody in rehab to invite whoever is supporting it, could be their their parents, their partner, their siblings, to come to an information night about the service um, and any questions that they might have. And and, and it's an education service, but it's also allowing them to ask any questions that they have and any concern that they might have moving forward, discharge, what we do about discharge planning, what is the person going to do beyond here, how can they help them. It also gives, we also involve the people in rehab. So everyone's together in one room or on Zoom. Yeah? So that 
that everybody gets a sense of what this program is about yeah. and, and sheets, if like. there's any question can be asked in that. But in also in rehab in the outpatient program, we offer it. Um, so in that big in that bigger session, it's really an information session. But we can have a very tailored session. So if you come along and say, I want to invite my dad because I don't really think he understands. I want to bring him in more to what I'm going through, to why, to why the because. Why have I ended up with an addiction? Then we'll do a session just tailored for that family. And we can do that. We can have one with your brother. We can have one with your dad. We can have one with, it, it, it's not just one. You know, often people have might have separated parents. We'll do mum, one with mum and one with dad. It, yeah, so we definitely offer, that's a very, very important part of our program, actually. Yeah. To, so, to allow the family to feel part of the process. Yes. Um, and of course, when they do outpatient, when they do outpatient and um, parents might have a, a concern about what's going on, um, we can also do them as outpatient. But they're always driven by does the person in our treatment want to have that session? Right. It has to be their decision. Yeah. So, Michael, would you like to um, just, I guess, outline the impact of family on recovery? One thing you have to remember is it's not always the sickest member of the family that ends up in hospital with us. <laughs> Too true. Um, and, and certainly um, one of the things I tell my patients with borderline personality disorder is if we're not sure what your diagnosis is, we wait to see who you have lunch with. Um, uh, so one of the things we're trying to assess is what are the dynamics within the family. One of the things we also have to be careful about is that we are in our treatment process empowering our patients and that can then shift the balance of power within the relationship at home um, and they need to understand that they're learning things that their partners are not um, so again couples counseling is something we can flag and begin to deal with in the program but if those are serious issues then we would encourage them to continue to do more official structured couples counseling uh, with one of the agencies or one of the psychologists out there in the community um, but it, it is recognizing that um, and one of the simple things we do is look at the genetics of anxiety for example and help them understand where their shyness or their worry or their obsessionality comes from they're they're not freaks within their family genes are a, a lottery and um, they've got a different mix of mum and dad from their brothers and sisters and certainly warn them that if they don't want stubborn kids or kids with short tempers then avoid partners with those sorts of qualities um, so helping them understand where they fit within their family i think is also part of the things that we do so um it, it really is complex and as I've said, we're at the beginning of a two-year journey and we have to keep reminding ourselves we can't do it all in four or five weeks and also reminding them that they're not expected to do it all in four or five weeks. One of the things that we do talk about as well is that they're, that they're often people, people who are sitting in rehab or detox are often seen as the problem, like you're saying, Mike. And what we do encourage um, in the family sessions is how what is the dynamic between you that is not working what 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 are the communicate what's the communication what's the culture in the family what do you want it to be what is it now what do you want it to be and how does everybody help that process not just the person in here but what are what are others willing to do to meet people in the middle 
Mm. which is really important as well. Yeah, very different. One of, the, yeah. one of the groups we see a lot of are people who like to please. And one of the dynamics mm. there is people who like to please attract people who want to be pleased. Mm. And so often there's an inherent imbalance of, in the power in their relationships. Um, and helping people to understand that other people's behavior is telling you something about who they are. It's not necessarily a reflection of who you are. So separating out what's me from what's not me is something they can begin to do in the group by looking at the way they understand other people's behavior in the group and then applying some of those lessons to their family in the community. Mm, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about the Melbourne Clinic, uh, you can phone them on 0394294688 or go online to themelbourneclinic.com.au for more information. And in the Geelong region, uh, there's the Geelong Clinic. Uh, they offer similar addiction services and you can phone them on 0352400700 or you can go online at thegeelongclinic.com.au. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Dr. Michael Maloney and Effie Moriartis uh, from the Melbourne Clinic for sharing their rehab experience with us. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Living Free Show. Uh, next week we will be joined by Ray from Al-Anon Family Groups and talk about recovery from alcoholism, the family disease. Coming up next, we have Balam Wa, the spirit of Wa, hosted by Uncle Talgium Choco Edwards. Join Uncle Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. To take us out, we've got a song called A Day at a Time by Kate Taylor. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.